Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here today. And uh, we're in Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to be finishing the chapter. We're going to begin in verse 47. And we're going to read through verse 75 this morning. 47 through 75. And the title of the message today is Truly on the Right Side of History. Truly on the right side of history. Beginning in verse 47. When he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scripture of the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? And you you have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, (coughs) Prophesy to us, you, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a little while the bystander came up, And said to Peter, Certainly you 
Two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the proclamation of his word. We often hear the phrase today about being on the right side of history. Being on the right side of history. We hear that all the time. It's often mentioned out of an uh, evolutionary worldview that the world is getting better and better and, and it's getting uh, more and more just. And, and so this view says that ancient people, and ancient is loosely loosely uh, defined because ancient people could mean people 10 years ago, actually. Ancient people um, had many things wrong about how the world is supposed to operate. But the world's evolving. And in time, given enough time, it will become a more just and better world. And according to this worldview, the embrace of moral change is one of the things that will make the world better. So, they say, those who hold this view, you had better embrace these moral changes or you're going to be on the wrong side of history. We hear that all the time, don't we? But that's not the worldview of the Bible. It is not the worldview of the Word of God. The Bible teaches that God created a perfect world, a world that was totally just, without evil, without any kind of corruption. And in this perfect world, God gave human beings a choice to believe Him and love Him and live in this perfect world, or not to believe God, be the rulers of their own life, and bring corruption and death to this world. The first man and woman could believe God and live in a world that was perfect and just, or they could choose not to believe God. God gave them this choice. And if they chose not to believe God, God warned them that this would bring death and through death, destruction and corruption of his world. So what did the first man and woman decide to do? They decided not to submit to the loving creator of the universe. But the first man and woman decided they wanted to be their own gods and lords. And because they did this, and they rebelled against the sovereign ruler of the universe, death and destruction and corruption were brought upon the world. That's the problem with the world today. However, also, because God knew that men would choose the path of rebellion against him, and the path that would lead to death and destruction of his creation, in his eternal wisdom, God provided a plan to redeem the world and to restore his creation to perfection. In God's plan of redemption, God would redeem and ultimately remake his fallen creation. In this Christian view of history, history is his story, is God's story. Being on the right side of history from a Christian viewpoint is seeing everything from God's perspective. Everything from God's perspective. 
Being on the right side of history is calling right and good and beautiful what God calls right and good and beautiful. Being on the wrong side of history is calling good what God calls evil, calling right what God calls wrong, calling beautiful what God calls ugly. In the Christian view of history, we realize that God God is ultimately in control of history. It's not just cycling around. We're not just, you know... Uh, incarnated as, as a man in one life and a flea in a next life. That's not how it works. In God's, in the Christian view of history, we realize God is ultimately in control of history and He is bringing it to a perfect and just and complete end where He will do away with evil and, and God will, will reign in perfection with His people Uh, with Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever and ever. That's the Christian view of history. That's the biblical view of history. (coughs) In this portion in Matthew 26 that we read this morning, we see, we have to look closely and think about it, but we see that God has ultimate control in every circumstance. God has ultimate control in every circumstances. Uh, every circumstance. We see this in the situation where Jesus arrested, accused, and betrayed, that Jesus was ultimately in control of what was happening. Superficially, if we just read this, and many have read this in history and they haven't got this, you might think the events are spiraling out of control. But when you truly look at the events that happened, you see that it wasn't the evil actors like Judas and the religious establishment who hated Jesus who controlled these events. Jesus was in control of these events. From the passage of scripture from Matthew 26, we see this timeless truth, that God always ultimately controls the course of history, which will reestablish forever His eternal rule over the universe. God always ultimately controls the course of history, which will reestablish forever his eternal rule over the universe. Now you might say to me, how do we see that in this passage, Pastor? I can see that maybe from other passages of Scripture, but how do we see that in, in this crucial event that took place in the life of Jesus? I think, it's, I think as you study it, it becomes more and more obvious. First of all, God controls situations where it looks like he is out of control. It, it looks like he's not in control. God controls situations where it looks like he is not in control. Now Jesus had prayed and he was ready for what is ahead. He went to his three closest friends who were sleeping when they should have been praying. And while Jesus was still speaking to them in Matthew 26, Judas, <coughs> one of the twelve, <coughs> came up to him with a crowd of uh, a great crowd composed of soldiers and maybe some just kind of mobsters, I would call them, and others who were armed with swords and clubs. <coughs> Judas had told these people, this crowd that came with him, uh, that the one he kissed was the man they wanted to arrest, and the one Judas kissed was the one they should seize. Now the kiss, as in our day, was a sign of affection and respect. And the kiss also was among men. Oftentimes men would greet each other with a kiss on both cheeks. This happens in many parts of the world today. It was a sign of respect and affection. And so Judas then went... And with a great show, 
a great show kissed Jesus. But Judas's kiss was neither a show of respect or affection. Judas's kiss was a sign of ultimate betrayal. When you read this event in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that all of them identified Judas as one of the twelve. One of the inner circle. One who was closest to Jesus. And now he was betraying Jesus and sent and was selling him out. Jesus knew that this was coming. We remember from, he had told him, one of you is going to betray me in the events of the Last Supper. Jesus knew what it was coming. And so, and he knew what the kiss meant. (coughs) In fact, I think in Luke's gospel, Jesus said directly to Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knew what this meant. And so in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. Basically, he said, enough of this pretense. Enough of this hypocrisy. Do what you came to do. You came to betray me. Betray me. Quit acting like you respect me or you, you have affection for me. He called him friend. Now, we've seen in Matthew the term friend is often, it's not really, it's not really a, a term like I would call you friend. It was kind of a term when there was a disagreement or someone was, was arguing with Jesus. It wasn't really, it was kind of a term which is used in a negative sense in Matthew. Jesus said, stop this charade, do what you came to do. Uh, Jesus knew what Judas was doing, and he was ready for the hypocrisy to be over. And so the mob with Judas came up and laid hands on Judas and see, and lays hand on Jesus and seized Jesus. Then what happened? One of the disciples took his sword and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, we know from John's gospel, it was Peter. Peter took his sword. And I don't think Peter was a very good uh, swordsman because I really think Peter was probably trying to cut off this guy's head. He missed his head and he cut off his ear. He cut off his ear. And, And in fact, John tells us that the name of the servant of the high priest he cut off was Malchus. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really tell us who 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 was the swordsman. And many scholars believe maybe Peter and uh, Malchus were both still living at this time. And they and and if and if they would have named him when Matthew wrote down his gospel, Peter could have been in trouble. But by the time John wrote his gospel. Peter was was dead, and probably Malchus was dead too. It's interesting that Malchus is named. You you wonder, how did they know Malchus's name? Did Malchus later become a follower of Christ? Who knows? We don't know. And so so Peter uh, cut off the ear of Malchus. Um, and and what did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked Peter. He rebuked Peter, and he and uh, in fact. <coughs> Luke tells us that he healed Malchus's ear. He healed Malchus's ear. Um, and so Jesus rebuked Peter, and uh, but Peter showed something when he did this. His impetuous act uh, showed some bravery, but it was also very foolish. It was not something that Jesus wanted him to do. He didn't do it because Jesus told him to do. He did it on his own initiative. Uh, it was a brave act because Peter could have been arrested. You know, if Jesus wouldn't have healed Malchus's ear, I think he probably would have been arrested. 
But Jesus said, whoever draws the sword will perish by the sword. Uh, You see, the sword is never a tool for believers in any age to protect Jesus, to protect his reputation. It's never a tool for those in any age to advance his gospel. Never in any age. Every time that people have used the sword to try to advance the cause of Christ, it's been disaster. And it's not the way of the gospel. But then Jesus did something to show that he was in control of the situation. Jesus said, don't you know I could call on my father and he would send 12 legions of angels at once if I called on him? Jesus said, but then he said, how should the scripture be fulfilled if I did this? Hey, they're not in control. If I wanted to stop this, I don't need Peter as a bad swordsman trying to protect me. I could call 12 legions of angels. You know how much a legion was? A Roman legion was basically 6,000 men. And so Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels, if I wanted to stop what was happening. But he said, if I did that, how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? It's got to be this way. This is God's way, God's plan of redemption. Jesus could have stopped the situation at any time, but he submitted to what was happening and he controlled the situation. Then he said to those arresting him, have you come out as a robber, as a, as, a, as a rebellious person with swords and clubs to capture me? I was in the temple every day. You could arrest me anytime. But he said, all this, all this has taken place that the, scripture, the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Why didn't you arrest me before? You could have. You could arrest me anytime. But this is the way the scriptures had planned that this would be. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. Now you look at this arrest of Jesus and you see that when Judas betrayed Jesus and this mob came to arrest Jesus, Jesus was the one who was in control. Jesus is the one who was in control. Do you realize that in your own life? At all times in our life, Even when the circumstances of our life seem chaotic and senseless, God is in control. He will help you. He knows what He's doing in your life. There's never a time when He loses control. There's never a time that He's not working for your good and my good. He is always in control. Uh, He is always in control. There's never a time when God is not directing history to its ultimate conclusion, the forever reign of Jesus. You know, you and I can be surprised by the circumstances of life. We can be surprised uh, of the way the world is today. We can be surprised by things like falling stock markets and the coronavirus and all that's going on in our world. But God is not surprised. We are not out of God's care. We are in His care. We don't have to panic. We don't have to rash. Uh, act rashly like Peter and try to cut somebody's head off. We have to trust God to guide us step by step through whatever we will face in this life. And He will. God is in control of situations when it looks like He's not in control. There's something else here I think that we need to see that God ultimately controls and that's this. God controls situations when the unrighteous seem to have the upper hand. Now, Jesus was taken by those who seized him, first John's gospel tells us, to Annas. Now, Annas may have been uh, what 
he may have been the traditional high priest. A high priest in the Old Testament was appointed for life. But by the time the Romans were in control, the Romans said, we can't have a high priest appointed for life because they will have too much power. <coughs> so they made them choose a different high priest every year. Now, Annas may have been the traditional Jewish high priest, but, uh, but, and so that's where they first went to, um, took Jesus to, and Annas uh, questioned Jesus. And then Jesus was taken to Caiaphas and, uh, and uh, a quorum of the Sanhedrin. <coughs> Caiaphas was the high priest recognized by the Roman authorities. Annas actually was his father-in-law, so this was kind of a family-made business, a family-controlled business, this high priest stuff. And they were powerful political figures. The chief priests in the council, and uh, Caiaphas and those others, uh, the Sanhedrin, they'd already decided to seek to crucify Jesus. They had made this decision. But they had to have a legitimate charge. They, you can't just execute someone. And they didn't have the power to execute anyway. They had to, they had to bring a charge to the Romans, and the Romans would either say, okay, we'll agree with that, we'll carry out the execution, or the Romans would stop it. And so, and so the, the Sanhedrin had to have a legitimate charge. Now, if all were present, it was composed of, the Sanhedrin was composed of the chief priests and elders, both Sadducees and Pharisees. It had 70 members, but it could do business with a quorum of 23. 23. Now, those present, probably not all the Sanhedrin, because we know that there were some, some of the Sanhedrin, like Judas and, uh, not uh, Judas, but Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, they were members of the Sanhedrin. They did not agree with what had happened. Probably not all the Sanhedrin was present. Maybe just even a minimum quorum of 23. Maybe even those that quorum that was hostile to Jesus, because you'd call in your buddies who would agree with you. Uh, and so they try to bring witnesses before this group of the Sanhedrin, uh, this quorum of the Sanhedrin, to provide some kind of charge that they could take the Roman, the Roman government who would call for Jesus' execution. Now notice this. Jesus was in control when he was tried here. You see, they wanted Jesus dead, but they had to find two witnesses who agreed because no one, according to Old Testament law, could be uh, sentenced to death without two witnesses agreeing. And so they had all these witnesses come in, all these false witnesses that accused Jesus of all kinds of things. And after a while, they had two witnesses that kind of agreed that Jesus had said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it within three days. Now, Jesus had said something like that. You go to the Gospel of John, you find it. He'd said something like this, that he would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. But he, actually, he was pointing to himself as his body. And he was speaking of his bodily resurrection. Not the temple building itself, so to speak. And so these two witnesses testified to that. But even their testimony, it says, did not fully agree. And even their testimony would not be enough for Jesus to be executed, and that's what the Sanhedrin wanted. That's what the chief priests wanted. The chief priests wanted, according to John, that one man should die instead of the whole nation perish. Uh, John's Gospel tells us. And so here they were. They wanted to execute Jesus, but they didn't have the charges to execute Jesus. 
The high priest then turned to Jesus. He said, aren't you going to answer what these two guys said? He wanted something from Jesus that, would, that he would incriminate himself. Jesus was silent. He was in absolute control of the situation. <coughs> the high priest then did something that he was not supposed to do in a, in a, in a, uh, in a capital crimes trial. The defendant was not supposed to have to uh, incriminate himself. But the, the chief priest was kind of at the last end of what he could do. And he says, he, so he put him under oath when he said, I adjure you by the living God. That, that was, that's kind of a way to put you under oath. It's kind of like saying to you, will you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? He was putting him under oath, and he says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So whether Jesus would be set free, or Jesus would be executed, was going to be based on whether Jesus answered this question, or did not answer the question, and how he answered the question. Jesus could have been silent. He could have avoided the question and basically... But if he avoided the question, basically he was saying no. They would have to release him. But also that would be denying who Jesus was. That would be denying who Jesus was. Jesus would not not, uh, refuse to answer this question because he came... To die for us on the cross. To suffer in our place. And so he answered. You've said so. You, it's out of your words. Your words are true basically what he's saying. In uh, Mark's gospel he said I am. And you, if you know the Old Testament you know I am was the, was the name that God gave to Moses uh, at the burning bush. <coughs> Mark tells us that. And then Jesus adds... I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus said, Caiaphas, your words are true. He answered in the affirmative. (coughs) But then he said, I'm not the revolutionary Messiah that you guys think, but I am the Messiah, the true Messiah. I'm sent by God. And he quoted from the prophet Daniel, which we looked at in Daniel chapter 7. He said... He, I'm going to come on the clouds, uh, come from the right end of power. And Caiaphas, I'm going to be your judge, is basically what he's telling Caiaphas. Jesus' answer was necessary to convict him and send Jesus to the cross. Even though it looked like these evil men were in control, Jesus was in control. What Jesus said was completely true if they would have acknowledged it. But they would not acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. The high priest tore his robes and said, Jesus had uttered blasphemy. And he called for a verdict. And those gathered here, this quorum of the Sanhedrin, said he deserves death. Then all the pent-up hostility that these wicked men felt toward Jesus came up. They spit in Jesus' face They struck him with their hands. Mark tells us they blindfolded him and said, Prophesy to us, who hit you, Christ? Who is it that struck you? Their hatred came pouring out. You see, if hatred's in you, sooner or later it's going to come out of you. You know, sometimes we see these uh, really 
uh, violent and not violent, but vitriolic kind of political things happen. And you wonder, where did that come from? I thought we were supposed to agree to disagree. But the truth is, if hatred's in you, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. Were they in control of this? No. Jesus' own words about himself were the words that they used to condemn him to the cross. Even when it seemed like evil men or women were controlling the situations, God was in control. And in that, it's the same way that thing is true in our lives. Evil will not win. God is bringing about his ultimate rule in his time. God controls situations when even when the unrighteous seem to have the upper hand, they never, ever do. One final thing I want to point out, how God controls uh, the course of history, and that's this. God controls situations when his followers fail him miserably. Now, Peter followed Jesus from a distance, the scripture says, and he went inside the courtyard of the high priest, where the soldiers, maybe those who arrested him were, who knows, there were other people there. And so Peter sat with the guards, and he wanted to see, how was this thing going to come out? Uh, Now, if Peter would have remembered Jesus' words, he would have known how it's going to turn out. Because Jesus said he was going to die. He was going to be crucified. Uh, Jesus had told him <coughs> that Peter would fall away and all the others would fall away in fulfillment of the scripture. The shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. Jesus had told them after he was raised up, he would go before them into Galilee. But Peter didn't hear any of this. He, didn't, he only heard what he wanted to hear. Do you know as Christians... Sometimes, even when we read the Bible, we have our own prejudices, we have our own blind spots, and we only hear what we want to hear. It was true in Peter's life, and sometimes it's been true in my life, and I'm sure probably sometimes it's true in your life. You see, we have to let the Scripture say what it says. We have to let Jesus say what He says instead of what we want Him to say. Peter had told Jesus, even if everybody else fell away, He would never fall away. He would, uh, even if they had to die with Jesus, he would not die with, he would die with, even if the others fell away, he would die with Jesus. That's what required. Peter did not think he was going to fail Jesus. Now, when Jesus was arrested, Peter bravely, but wrongly sought to defend Jesus. And I wonder if Peter thought, well, you know, I just showed I'm not going to deny the Lord. I, I was willing to take up the sword for him. You know, I was willing to die with him. He, at least Peter might have thought, I try to defend Jesus. Maybe he thought he had already overcome the temptation. But the truth is, sometimes even after we do something brave, we let down our guard and don't realize the real attack is still ahead. The real attack is still ahead. The devil rarely attempts us in obvious ways. He rarely tempts us in obvious ways. Peter went into the courtyard. And what did he do there? He hung around with Jesus' enemies. And that's always going to get you in trouble, right? When you're hanging around with Jesus' enemies by yourself, you think you're strong enough to handle it, you're probably going to blow it. Now Peter faces 
the fall that Jesus had warned him would happen. While sitting with these enemies of Jesus, a servant girl, one of the least powerful people in society, a servant girl, confronted Peter and said, you were with the Galilean, weren't you? Peter denied it and said, I don't know, what, to, what are you talking about? Are you talking to me? You know, are you talking to me? And he, and, and he denied Jesus the first time. And Peter moved away. He moved away from her and he kind of moved to a dark, darker part of uh, the courtyard, it seems like. A little while later, <clears throat> another powerless servant said in front of the others who were gathered, this man also with Jesus of Nazareth. And this time Peter denied it with an oath. He basically said, I swear, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. Notice how he said the man. I don't know this fellow. I don't know this guy, Jesus, you're talking about. Well, a little while later, some of the bystanders confronted Peter and they said this, certainly you too are one of them for your, your accent, your Galilean accent betrays you. You see, Peter was Galilean and Galileans had a different accent, just like Southerners have a different accent than Northerners. And, and they tend to look down on each other. Uh, people tend to look down on each other. The, the Galileans were looked down on by the people of Judah because of their accent. They thought they were hicks, basically. You are one of them. Your, gal, your accent betrays you. Now, now think about this. This didn't happen just like boom, boom, boom. Peter denied Jesus. He moved to a different part. A little while later, you know, somebody else confronts him. He, he says, I didn't even know the guy. I swear I don't even know the guy. And then, you know, it's a little while later. What's happening with Jesus? See, this is the courtyard of the high priest. This is where it's all taking place. Maybe Jesus had seen or heard. Maybe Peter had seen or heard Jesus by this time being spit upon. Maybe Peter had heard Jesus being hit with people's fist. Maybe Peter had seen Jesus being mocked. And so maybe Peter slowly was losing that courage that he once had. And so this time, he invoked a curse upon himself. He's, you know, probably something, if, if I'm lying, maybe be struck from heaven, you know, some, some kind of curse. Let this thing happen to me. And he swore again, I do not know the man. Then it happened. The cock crowed. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said that before the cock crows, three times before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Luke also tells us that Jesus looked at Peter. We don't know where Jesus was. Maybe he was walking through the courtyard because they were getting ready to, to, to take him probably to the temple for a kind of an official trial. Maybe Jesus looked out a window and he just caught a glimpse of Peter. And so here was Jesus looking at Peter after he denied him three times. After Jesus had been spit upon and struck and mocked, Jesus looked at Peter. 
You see, it's easy, it's easy to stand for Jesus when, when everything's going well, when we're, when we're semi-popular, when people don't think we're crazy religious fanatics. It's easy to stand for Jesus those times. But what about in, like in our day, when Jesus is being mocked and beaten and spit upon, when His Word is maligned and His law is ridiculed, when we see even the leaders of our nation continually turn their backs on the truth of Jesus and His gospel, and, and, and they mock the very truths of the Christian faith, that Jesus alone is the hope of the world and the way of salvation. You see, will we lose courage also in our day? If we think we're strong, we probably will. If we don't realize that we need God's power to help us day in and day out, we probably will because we're not that much different than Peter. We're not that much different than Peter. If we think we are, that we think we're beyond falling, we don't pray and walk in the Spirit, we're going to blow it. Peter thought the test, I think Peter thought he'd already passed the test. Jesus was arrested, I pulled out the sword. But the true test was before the little servant girls and the people in the courtyard. And Jesus looked at him. You know, I don't think Jesus' look was a, I told you so look. I don't believe it was that kind of look. I remember one time when I was a teenager, and I was doing something wrong, and my mom walked in the door. You know, my mom caught me doing something wrong. You know, my mom did not say a word to me. She just had the saddest look on her face as her eyes caught each other. I think that's the kind of look that Jesus gave Peter. Peter, Jesus knew Peter was going to fail because Peter was depending on himself, his own strength. Jesus knew that Peter needed to learn to, that he was weak and so he would depend on God's power and know God's power. Jesus didn't relish Peter's fall. He mourned Peter's fall and, he was start, and, and, and it was almost immediately after the resurrection that he soon began the restoration of Peter. But Jesus allowed Peter to be tempted. Jesus allowed this to happen because it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brother. Jesus did not relish Peter's fall, but Jesus knew that if for Peter to become the Peter that we read about in Acts... Peter had to realize his own weakness. He had to know that he couldn't handle it. He couldn't do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit working through his life. You see, even when we fail Jesus, it's not going to mess up God's plan for our lives. It's not going to mess up His ultimate plan for victory. Failure doesn't separate you as a believer or me from the love of Jesus. Because the one who began a good work in you and me will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. See, God controls situations even when we as His followers fail Him miserably. And He doesn't leave you there. If you're His child, He'll lift you up and He'll help you to get going again. God is in control. 
even when we don't realize that he's in control. I'll never forget when I was a pastor in Iowa, I was in charge of the youth camps almost, you know, for like 10 years in a row. And I was always trying to find good speakers, and I, and I, I found a pretty good speaker, a young guy. Um, his name was Ethan. I, I don't remember Ethan's last name, but he came and he preached one year. He did a super job. So I invited him back the next year. Well, on the first night of youth camp, he didn't preach a typical youth camp uh, sermon. He preached on the sovereignty of God at youth camp. The first night of youth camp. The illustration he used is seared in my mind. He said there was a believing young man whose mother was killed by a two-by-four as she and her husband drove down the highway. The two-by-four came out of a truck. It flew through the air. It crashed through the window. It hit his mother and she was killed instantly. He said a friend said to this young man who was trying to comfort him, he said to him, God didn't have anything to do with that two-by-four smashing through the window and your mother's death. He thought he was trying to comfort him. He was trying to help him. And that's what he said to him. But that reasoning did not seem correct to this young man because he thought to himself, how could I trust any God with my life who could not even control the direction of a two-by-four? Flying out of a truck. Now that's a tough question. That's a difficult question. We don't like to think that God's always in control when bad stuff happens to us. But He is. The events of life sometimes don't make sense from our perspective, right? They seem arbitrary and chaotic. It seems like God is not in control, that He doesn't love us. It seems like the godless, the immoral, the unrighteous have the upper hand. It seems like it seems like that when we or something happens to us, it just doesn't make sense. Or maybe when we fail God miserably, or maybe when someone we looked up to us fail God miserably. But I want you to know God is in control. He loves you and He promises. To cause it all for your good and the good of those he loves. To the good of those he's called and to the good of those he loves according to his purpose. Never forget God is bringing about his redemptive purposes. God is in control of history. Ultimately God is bringing history to its climax. He's going to destroy evil completely. He's working in and through the events of history to ultimately bring about the eternal reign of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's bringing about that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God always ultimately controls the course of history which will reestablish forever His return or rule over the universe. We're never out of the loving hands of God. Our world is never out of, the, of, of a God is bringing it to its ultimate fulfillment, the destruction of evil 
and the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. And you're a sovereign God. And you see the evil that happens in the world. And Lord, we know that it's not out of your hands. You know it's coming. You know it's happening. And you also know how to help us through it all. And you also know that even whatever we face, that you're going to bring about good for those who love you, for those who called according to your purpose. You are the sovereign ruler of the universe. We thank you, Lord, that history is moving toward a conclusion where evil will be destroyed and where Jesus Christ will reign in righteousness forever and ever and ever. Thank you for this, Lord. We praise you for this. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.